0: It's everywhere in the South. In our bread, our tortillas, our whiskey, our soda. I'm talking about corn. Heck, it's even in the slogan for this podcast, make cornbread, not war. But the origins of corn take you to
1: Mexico. Maize was first domesticated probably about 8,000 years ago in Southern Mexico. And the first maize varieties were exquisitely tuned to that environment. You're listening to Gravy.
0: Gravy. Gravy. Gravy.
1: Stories of the changing American South through the foods we
0: eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a hunt for the origins of corn. How it made its way to our tables here in the South. And what can that prehistory tell us about corn's future here? Stephen Satterfield took a journey, well, a couple of journeys, to Mexico to find out.
2: It's been almost one year exactly since I made my initial transformative voyage to the state of Oaxaca in Mexico. That trip was supposed to be about Mezcal, the agave-based Mexican spirit that's kin to, or some say, grandmother of tequila. I came for agave, but I got distracted by, of all things, corn. Maize, as it's called in Mexico, it's everywhere. Every meal, every street vendor, every home, every dish.
3: The corn, the native corn can teach us one kind of life.
2: Amado Ramirez is a restaurateur who's developed a reputation as much for his commitment to preserving indigenous corn as serving it. He's traveled to various regions of Mexico purchasing, educating, and encouraging indigenous communities to preserve their native maiz. This is not like those yellow ears in their pale green straight jackets sold in produce sections in summertime. I knew that. But I didn't know exactly why that was the case. I wanted to know the stories of Maze, but I didn't know how to ask the right questions. Amato offered a starting point.
3: The Green Revolution, you know what is the Green Revolution?
2: <laughs> Amato's laughing heartily because he knows that, even though I nod yes, it's clear, I don't really know much about this Green Revolution he's talking about.
3: Perhaps it's necessary to talk out the history from the (laughs) corn. Please.
2: It's necessary in this story, too. And don't worry, we'll come back to the Green Revolution. But that conversation with Amato a year ago got me on a corn kick, and I've been asking questions about maize ever since. I should say first that I'm no corn expert. I'm not a farmer, seed saver, or geneticist. What I am is an intensely curious person and especially about food. I'm in awe of the diversity of the things we eat and drink and how little we know about where they come from or how they came to be. Back in 2004, in my final weeks as a teenager, I decided to go to the Western Culinary Institute in Portland, Oregon. The plan was to become a chef, but it didn't take long to realize that cooking at home and cooking for a living weren't the same thing. I focused my attention on something that seemed to have more long-term promise, wine notice an early recurring theme in my career choices. I learned about wine from a soft-spoken, silver-haired man named John Eliasson. He was a part-time wine educator and part-time winemaker. He taught me that Burgundy is not a generic name for inexpensive wine in giant bottles. It's actually just a tiny and legendary region just a few hours south of Paris. Mr. Eliasson spent his formative years studying in that part of France. He returned with his lessons to a town called McMinnville in Oregon's Willamette Valley, a patch of blessed soil so close to Portland it's basically a suburb. It's home to more than 500 acres of beautifully manicured vineyards that produce wines ranging from the pleasant to the profound. This is where I learned about a concept called terroir. Basically terroir refers to how the natural environment impacts wine. Soil, climate, altitude, and ecology. All these things play a role in the final product. This framework completely changed the way I thought about all the things I ate and drank including, eventually, corn. Corn is part of my own Southern history. I have over a century of Southern blood swirling through my veins, five generations to be exact. As a descendant of slaves, I can trace my ancestors back to the precise plantations where they worked. Corn cooking runs through my belly and my bloodline. Corn became the perfect opportunity for me to ask my favorite question, but this time with an anthropological twist. Not just, where'd this come from, but how did it get here? And so, back to Mexico I went. One of the things that tripped me out in Mexico was how tortillas have been utensils there not just for hundreds, but thousands of years. It's not that Mexican people develop maize. In fact, it's the other way around. Maize developed Mexico. It was the central catalyst in the formation of the country. Amado told me,
3: "The corn is the is the master, yeah, the master. Of, in in Asia, for example, was the rice. In Europe, uh, wheat. Yeah, wheat, wheat, trigo, mm-hmm. wheat, yeah. By us, is the corn."
4: Well, los mexicanos estamos hechos de maíz. We Mexicans are made of corn. Consumimos el We consume corn maiz daily. In different, in different presentations.
2: That's Flavio Aragon Cuevas, one of Mexico's foremost experts on native corn. He doesn't speak much English, so we're giving him a hand with the translation. If I was in Oaxaca and I was learning about corn, then I had to meet Flavio. Here, he is the keeper of the corn. In part, it's his job, but after meeting him, it's clear it's his identity, his passion he often uses his own time and money to track down indigenous seeds. Flavio took me inside an impressive seed bank at an institute that's basically like Mexico's USDA. Here, hundreds of heirloom seeds from throughout Mexico are kept under lock in a secured walk-in. He oversees a garden plot where he tests seeds and starts from various parts of the country, always trying to make a connection. In addition to corn, he has the most native species of Oaxacan beans, squash, and chili peppers.
4: It's part of our lives for us Mexicans. All over Mexico, from north to south, east to west. We all eat corn in different iterations, not just as tortillas. We have many different uses for corn. There are some products that consumers don't even know are made out of it. And in rural areas, corn is a fundamental way of getting nutrition.
2: So clearly, Mexican people strongly identify with maize. And the reason is that corn's earliest ancestor comes from here.
4: The most accepted theory about the origins of corn that comes for the scientist. Teosinte, is the ancestor, the grandfather of corn.
2: The story of corn begins with this wild grass called Teosinte and the indigenous people who, through centuries of crossbreeding, grew with it. It's an upright plant with bottom-heavy, bushy stalks. It has what wouldn't really be fair to call a cob. It looks more like asparagus, with a rock-hard shell encapsulating the
4: seed. Many archaeological sites in the country have found that the Ocinte has existed for many thousands of years, more than 6,000 years. In fact, in many of the caves here in Jilan Nakits, Near Mitla, they found the most ancient archaeological sites of corn and squash. A squash from 10,000 years ago, and corn is 6-7,000 years old. They found fossils not of the ancestors of corn, but of already domesticated varieties of corn.
2: After seeing Flavio's Tio Cente and further researching it, the fact that native people evolved this grass into what we call corn is a testament to their agricultural brilliance and intuition. Genetically speaking, yes, there is a kinship, but it'd be really hard to see that from looking at this wild grass with the dark casing that wraps the seed. There are some culinary uses, but broadly speaking, it doesn't warrant the effort. There is no consensus on the origin story of maize, But just about every scientist agrees it was the result of human beings crossbreeding this wild grass over and over until it became corn.
5: Flavia really has been the person who's done the most work to conserve it, to keep it growing, to really keep it from going out of existence.
2: That's Martha Wilcox. She's the Maize Land Race Improvement Coordinator at the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center or Simit, as it's more commonly pronounced. Simit is headquartered in Taxcoco, Mexico, an old rural town about 15 miles northeast of Mexico City. If Flavio is the person to talk to about corn's origins, Martha helps me understand how it's spread around Mexico. Martha's from North Carolina and clearly loves learning about corn. She spent most of her adult life studying it and working to protect and promote heirloom varieties. Here on Simit's large campus, There are demonstration gardens full of scientists and enormous walk-in refrigerators more reminiscent of bank vaults. Martha has organized a long table in one of those walk-ins with indigenous corns for me to look at and ask about. She points at one called pepetilla.
5: This hook, this beak on the end is really characteristic of pepetilla and it has a high oil content and makes very spongy light tortillas. And this will come in, I've seen variants that are purple, yellow, black, red, white. So it comes, it, mostly it's in white, but you can find variants.
2: And it has a very interesting pattern as well, the way that it's sort of organized like almost arrows. You know?
5: Yeah, it's kind of stacked, Right. like chair, stacking chairs or something.
2: The Pepetia is just one of two dozen varieties of maize Martha has arrayed before us. Mexico is a country with enormous geographic diversity, so the maze evolved to match each little local microclimate. Each kind was tuned to its environment.
5: Wet coastland, lowland tropical areas to dry lowland tropical areas to transition zones and subtropical zones and wet and dry and mountainous zones where even from one face of a mountain to side to another, you change the, the differences in diseases and everything else.
2: It finds the place it likes to grow best and thrives there. Corn's natural proclivity to grow vigorously in favorable conditions not only helped varieties of maize in Mexico, it's what enabled corn's global proliferation. And that helps us understand the story of how it ends up in the southeastern United States.
0: Coming up, how corn made that transition from Mexico to the American South, that's ahead. There is that donor music. Fall is here, and it's time to turn our attention to one of my favorite parts of fall, Thanksgiving dinner. Chances are, on your table with the turkey and the cranberry sauce, there'll be cornbread dressing. While we may debate the merits of various family recipes, one thing we can agree on is that the cornbread is best cooked in a Lodge cast-iron skillet. Lodge Manufacturing has produced cast-iron cookware since 1896. They are a family-owned company in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, that supports the Southern Foodways Alliance, this gravy podcast, and the best cornbread dressings on Thanksgiving tables. For all of that, we thank them. And now, back to Stephen Satterfield.
2: Throughout history, farming communities quickly adopted corn. Once farmers learned the growing patterns for each variety, the corn responded with frequent and abundant harvest. That's a big part of how it came to migrate beyond Mexico and into North America.
1: Almost immediately there was this diversification and different corn types were adapted to different environments and this, you know, this is strong selection pressure by the people who were spreading this corn to develop these new varieties and different types of varieties that were adapted and
2: specifically to the region where they were growing it. And that process just continued. That's Jim Holland, research geneticist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He lives and works in North Carolina. He learned about an old corn variety there called Hickory King and wanted to know more about it. It led him following a trail of corn genes to Mexico. Jim says corn first entered the U.S. from a nomadic farming population crossing a highland corridor along the Sierra Madre Mountains, appearing first in New Mexico or Arizona about 4,000 years ago. It is thought to have also taken the lowland route into New Mexico and Arizona about 2,000 years later. So the first traces of maize in North America are found in the Southwest.
1: So you have corn that gets adapted into the Southwestern U.S. has grown under very dry conditions, Uh, very specific kinds of agriculture are are developed to grow corn in, in mostly desert conditions. And what happens is those corns are quite different than the
2: corns that, let's say, came here to the southeastern U.S. So, how does corn move east? Slowly. Hunter-gatherer societies moved eastward little by little as they figured out and adopted corn as an anchor agricultural product. So gradually, the natives figured out what would work best in a particular geographic area.
1: Probably about 1,200 years ago or so, uh, there is the shift, and it happens not just in, the, in North Carolina, but it looks like throughout the southeastern U.S. and and probably more widespread than that. There's a shift from uh, this kind of hunter-gatherer. Type societies to a more settled farming type of culture, and uh, accompanying that is this shift where maize or corn becomes really uh,
2: an important component of the farming systems. What kinds of corn landed in the southeast? You got to understand some nerdy terminology first.
1: There are these we call them land races. So the plant breeders we call these land race populations. I think the Typical people might recognize the term and heirloom type varieties. And they really go back probably at least hundreds, probably thousands of years um, in this more or less in the same region. So they've been maintained for a very, very long
2: time. Here's where Jim's starting point with corn comes back in.
1: Probably the most commonly grown heirloom variety for the Southeast that's used for food is hickory king.
2: Over and over in my research, I kept hearing about the link between the indigenous corns of North America and Mexico. Martha mentioned it too.
5: In the area where I grew up up of North Carolina, that Southern Appalachian area, there's a old land race that's still produced and still sold called Hickory King.
2: Back in Mexico, Martha told me they'd figured out it probably came from Tuxpanio, a town in the coastal state of Veracruz.
5: Hickory King, interestingly enough, its thought comes from this race, Tabloncillo, and I don't have a white version.
2: At Cement, we're walking around this long table, carefully investigating the distinctive qualities of beautiful, multicolored cobs and baskets. Each basket has a laminated white card on the front with the scientific name of the corn.
5: It's not as big as these maiz anchos, but they're pretty broad grains and they're Flat and they'll expand, like that flowering that you get with pasole, that you also get with hominies.
2: Martha is showing me the anchos, and she's right. The Hickory King is totally reminiscent of hominy.
5: I haven't seen this documented, but I'm assuming that that's a Cherokee, that it comes from the Cherokee, that the whole idea of making hominy, I would guess, came from the Cherokee.
2: This brought me right back to terroir that phrase from when I was learning about wine. Eating indigenous, regional maize like Hickory King prepared as the Cherokee did connects us with particular places and particular histories. And it connects the native people of Mexico with the native people of the United States. But in the middle of the last century, our relationship to corn got thrown off track. Corn ceased to be about nutritional sustenance, and soon, became industrial animal feed, fuel, or high fructose syrup. It has been bred for its productivity for thousands of years. In that sense, it became a victim of its own success, of its own special and immutable ability to be so many things at once. The Green Revolution that Amato mentioned to me back at the beginning of our story, and which I should have known about but didn't, that's when things started to go wrong with maize and man and womankind.
3: The Green Revolution began here in Mexico. This form began in 1965, here in Mexico with the court. It began with, with one engineer
2: from USA. He's talking about Nobel Prize-winning American scientist Norman Borlaug. Borlaug was known as the father of the Green Revolution, or the man who saved a billion lives. He was lauded and ridiculed in equal measure for engineering insanely productive maize and wheat that fed Mexico and other developing nations. But what was lost in the exchange were nutrient-dense indigenous varieties of corn that fed the souls and soils of Mexico.
3: In this time the paradigm, the paradigm was industrial production. I need more production. I produce in the kind of with machine and engineer for produce more. Yeah. And then in January, produced the hybrid corn. Why began that in Mexico? Because Mexico has very much a
2: diversity. Diversity. Again, the very thing that made corn in Mexico special. There were so many different kinds. Made it the place to experiment with the kind of hybrid corn that's taken over everywhere. In the South, where I'm from, I can't help but think about all the diversity that has been bred out of our region. Suddenly, I understand that surging feeling Jim must have gotten from his Hickory King epiphany. That what's there in North Carolina has roots to a diverse corn history in Mexico. My mind runs wild with thinking about possible future scenarios. When we look at this history, we have so many examples of Mesoamerican and Indigenous populations breeding corn specifically for culinary use. And today, interest in food culture has never been higher in our nation. I'm envisioning the untold corn flavors there are, a full palate and a blank canvas. I'm dreaming of our own regional pozoles and tortillas with distinctive flavors, unknown and rediscovered. Jim Holland thinks we should recruit chefs and well-intentioned eaters to a corn crusade. I'm not sure
1: what the ultimate um, sort of structure would be for kind of an organized effort, but I think we need to just start talking as the first thing. So, for example, I've been doing this kind of work with these Mexican food types. Really, when I started, which was more than 10 years ago, nobody ever talked about this sort of stuff, and I, I was just interested in it. And I think the sort of food movement has kind of grown up completely independent of you know, some of these genetic efforts. But now it's clear that, oh, there might actually be some interest. There might actually be a market for these things, which would be fantastic.
2: My corn journey was a surprising one. The Inquisition back in time left me awed by the agricultural competence and organization of early indigenous populations. Eating in Mexico is an invitation backwards into thousands of years into Mexican history. The grain facilitated the growth of a nation and a nation of people sustained the grain by keeping it in their diet. I found repeatedly talking with historians, scientists, or ordinary Mexican people that an inquiry into their favorite dish would lead inevitably to an impassioned discussion about food and invariably corn. It's hard to say whether or not they knew the value of what they'd helped preserve, but certainly that value was felt. And I think we could develop that same appreciation through our dinners here. We may not be the center of origin for corn, but we are the continent of origin and nothing is more American than eating corn. Growing and cooking a diverse variety of it can help us tap into these traditions, lost, found and undiscovered.
0: Stephen Satterfield is a writer and multimedia producer living in the Bay Area. He gave a talk on this same subject at the Fall 2016 symposium of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Thanks to Fernando Hernandez for his voiceover work in this piece, and we have some gorgeous photos of maize that Stephen took during his reporting in Mexico. You cannot believe the diversity of some of these varieties of corn. Those are on our website, southernfoodways.org/gravy. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions and several bands from Mexico that you should definitely check out. Radio Jarocho and Zene Zeferino. Los Cojolites is a band from Veracruz, whose music you can buy at loscojolites.bandcamp.com. We also had songs by Pedro Torres and Chogo Prudente, whose music you can find at corazon.com. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Gravy's managing editor is Sarah Camp Milam. And our intern is Tyler Pratt. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... At our fall symposium, the Southern Foodways Alliance explored corn, from the Mexican origins of maize that we've just been hearing about, to the American politics that inform corn syrup consumption. We honored genetic diversity activist Ira Wallace of Virginia with our Craig Claiborne Lifetime Achievement Award. We heard an homage to Jailhouse Cornbread by a hip-hop scholar... We staged a folk opera that connected Native American removals and struggles for LGBT rights, and we fed attendees cornbread madeleines and hominy-filled Brunswick stew. The four films we commissioned are now posted on the SFA website. So are some of the talks. You can visit southernfoodways.org to take a look at what we learned. And while you're there, consider becoming a member. Membership dollars support all the SFA work. Everything we do, including this podcast. Coming up next on Gravy, the food brought by a tobacco harvest.
5: It would be every corner of the table, counter, and I mean, the table that we we had is a huge table, and I mean, it would all be full, you know, of anything you could think about to eat.
0: How changes in the tobacco industry are being felt culinarily. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread and ore.